Warning, true stories and science is for mature audiences only. Open minds are advised. Broadcasting from the West Coast, here's Evan Weiss. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to this interview with one of the most prominent public intellectuals of our time, Noam Chomsky. Professor Chomsky has spent his life studying and writing about a wide range of topics, including linguistics, philosophy, and politics. His groundbreaking work in linguistics has revolutionized how we understand the acquisition of language, while his political commentary has helped us shed light on issues ranging from U.S. foreign policy to the nature of democracy. He was born in Philadelphia in 1928. Professor Chomsky received his undergraduate and graduate degrees from the University of Pennsylvania before joining the faculty at MIT in 1955, where he is currently Institute Professor Emeritus. Over the course of his long and illustrious career, Professor Chomsky has authored more than 100 books, countless articles, and he's been recognized with numerous awards and honors for his contributions to the fields of linguistics, philosophy, and political commentary. It is my great honor to welcome Noam Chomsky to True Stories and Science. Thank you for joining me on True Stories and Science, Professor Chomsky. I really appreciate your time. I will go straight into the questions and say that you've been very critical in the past of the role of the media in shaping public opinion. What is your opinion about the media and how it's covered the conflict between Ukraine and Russia? When the U.S. is in conflict with some enemy, uh, routinely the enemy is depicted as the ultimate evil, uh, monstrous brutes. Uh, we are presented as angelic, uh, marvelous, doing all the right thing. Uh, same true now. Uh, it's been true. First World War, Second World War, Korean War, Vietnam War. Uh, we didn't invent it. Uh, other imperial powers behave the same way. So right now, the standard picture is uh, the, uh, the Ukraine. Uh, there was, if, just to get the facts straight, there's no doubt, nobody debates that the invasion of Ukraine is a criminal act. It's a case of what the Nuremberg Tribunal called the supreme international crime. Uh, very much like the US invasion of Iraq, the Stalin-Hitler invasion of Poland, many others. That's all on the side. How do we depict it? Well, depicted as uh, rather interesting. You can do a Google, Google search for the phrase uh, unprovoked invasion. It's an interesting search. It was almost never used in the past. If you do it for unprovoked invasion of Ukraine, you get hundreds of thousands of hits. Uh, try it for unprovoked invasion of Iraq. Handful. Mostly some somebody wrote a letter to the editor. 
but uh, that's, that's interesting in itself. It's doubly interesting because it's the exact opposite of the truth. The invasion of Iraq was totally unprovoked, nothing to justify it. The invasion of Ukraine, Crimp does not justify it, but it was extremely provoked right to the end. Uh, we could run through the record, but it's not in question. Uh, this goes back to the 1990s when top echelon of the US diplomatic corps uh, warned that uh, and practically every historian and numerous political analysts warned the Clinton administration that it was reckless and provocative to violate the firm and unambiguous promise to Gorbachev that uh, NATO would not extend to the east if he agreed to a unified Germany within NATO. It's been a lot of deceit, but the documents which are readily available are absolutely clear, firm, unambiguous promise. Clinton was warned overwhelmingly uh, and also warned that the Russia would tolerate much extension to its borders. Ukraine was a red line, would never tolerate that. That's been completely clear. Head of the CIA, former heads of the CIA, uh, the defense secretary, hawkish defense secretary under Bush number two, ever any question. Well, the US continued to expand NATO to the east. George W. Bush, the second Bush, invited Ukraine to join NATO against overwhelming warnings from inside. Uh, then on to uh, arming uh, interoperability of weapons. Uh, the Biden administration went beyond it, entered into a strategic agreement, formal agreement with Ukraine, November 2021, to uh, enhance uh, military interoperability and also what was called an enhanced program for eventual incorporation of Ukraine within NATO. State Department conceded publicly that they had never taken Russian security considerations into account. Well, that leads us all the way to February, uh, the invasion. Again, nothing justifies the invasion, but to call it unprovoked is ridiculous. And it's very striking that that term, which was never rarely, if ever used before, is now a common usage. It's part of the picture. Well, it goes on like that. The official that was just very recently, last this February, major international meetings in Munich, the strategic conference in Munich, uh, a couple of others, and all of them, there has been a sharp split, which is reported here between the United States, Britain on one side, Europe insofar as it goes along, and almost the entire world on the other side. The United States, there's many laments in the press that the United States has been unable to bring the world to understand that they must support us on Ukraine. They refuse. Uh, almost the entire world 
is calling for a diplomatic settlement to prevent the conflict from getting even worse. US opposes a diplomatic settlement. The goal of the United States, the official goal is to severe, to continue the war, to severely weaken Russia. That's taking a ghastly gamble with the fate of Ukraine. It's saying we're taking a gamble that if Putin faces defeat, this demented madman, if he faces defeat, he'll pack up his bags, slink away silently to oblivion or worse, and he won't use the weapons that of course he has to uh, devastate Ukraine, to carry out a US-British kind of war, shock and awe. Now, if the Ukrainians want to take that gamble, it's up to them. But for the US to insist on blocking negotiations as it has been doing uh, in order to weaken Russia, that's our business. Almost no discussion of this. Uh, you can find it, you can find some discussion, interestingly. So the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, General Milley, did say about a month ago that there can't be a military settlement, we should move towards negotiations. He quickly backtracked under pressure. If you read the major establishment journal, Foreign Affairs, you can find leading uh, foreign policy specialists right in the mainstream who say pretty much the same. Anybody else tries to say it, they just get vilified. They're a Putin supporter, a supporter of genocide and so on. Uh, you could go on, but the general portrayal of the war is like most wars, severely unbalanced. If you want to find out what's happening, you really have to look somewhere else. So when, take the Munich Strategic Conference, when Kamala Harris, who was there as a US representative, vice president, when she gets up and tells them, uh, tells the world, no country is safe when one country can invade another with impunity. I mean, for most of the world, they collapse in ridicule. You're telling us that? You, the United States, is telling us that if one country invades another, all the war world is in threat, under threat. What about Iraq? What about Libya? What about Afghanistan? What about Serbia? What about, should I go back in history? So of course they collapse in ridicule. They're polite enough to just say quietly, no, we don't agree with you. But uh, here it's talked about as if there's some something wrong with the world. What's, why don't they see this? Because we can't look right. at our own crimes. They can, especially right. the victims. Can you discuss your views on the current state of the global political system? And how can individuals and governments work to address the issues of uh, inequality and conflict? Easy. By doing so, you want to deal with conflict. The way you can work to address it is by seeking to end the conflict. So in Ukraine, instead of insisting on 
sustaining the war to weaken Russia. Uh, we could look to see if there are possible diplomatic options available. If Ukraine doesn't want to accept them, it's up to them, but we can stop blocking them. You want to deal with issues of inequality, simple as pie. Uh, take uh, what's going on, we've just, just take a look at the last 40 years where inequality has exploded, uh, not by miracles, by legislation. So take say the Trump administration uh, had one legislative achievement, 2017 uh, tax cut, a tax cut for the very rich and the corporate sector with everyone else paying the bill. Well, you wanna overcome inequality, rescind that. Republicans are 100% insistent that that cannot be touched. Uh, okay, that prevents blocking inequality. Uh, uh, let's go back to the Democrats, Bill Clinton, uh, Reagan started this with uh, the uh, uh, the so-called neoliberal policies, which basically opened the floodgates to uh, uh, financial institutions to take whatever risks they wanted. And uh, well, the neoliberal policies are called market-friendly policies. That's only half true. It's a combination of markets and bailout. Uh, you take a risk, you make a lot of money, there's a crash, you call on the friendly taxpayer to bail you out. Didn't happen in the 50s and the 60s. Since Reagan, it's been happening regularly, worst each time, huge bailouts after the, uh, after the crashes. Uh, many other policies, Clinton instituted uh, international global, pol global trade policies. They're called free market policies, it's nonsense. They're highly protectionist, huge uh, protection for what are called intellectual property rights, patents of, of a kind that never existed in the past, uh, uh, radical uh, uh, interference with free trade, but it's one of the reasons why pharmaceuticals are, the costs are astronomical, uh, even though it's largely paid for by government research, but you get a patent, you can make a ton of money forever. Same across the board. Well, there's been an effect of this. In fact, it's been, the Rand Corporation has a recent study in which they tried to estimate the transfer of wealth from the lower 90% of the population to the top 1% in the past 40 years. Their estimate is roughly $50 trillion. That's pretty efficient highway robbery. Uh, you wanna deal with inequality? Again, you know exactly how to do it. Reverse the policies that are designed specifically to create extreme inequality. Not gonna be easy. The one of the two political parties is opposed to it in principle. I mean, you can see it even in small ways. 
like take a look at the current legislative debates. What's top on the House agenda? Top thing on the House agenda, cut 80,000 people out of the Internal Revenue Service. Why? So that they won't be able to investigate tax cheating. Who carries out tax cheating? Some working class guy who pays his taxes? Hmm. No. The very rich in the corporate sector. But we must protect them with grant their right to cheat tens of billions of dollars in taxes that the rest of us will pay. It's perfectly explicit. It's not secret. Right in front of you. Okay. How do we handle inequality? You can start reeling off the methods very simply. Your work uh, has often emphasized the importance of critical thinking, skepticism uh, towards authority. How can individuals and societies cultivate these skills, particularly in a world where misinformation and propaganda are so uh, prevalent? They can do it just the way we're doing it now. You can look at the, the facts are not hidden, they're not concealed. One of the good things about the United States, very free and open society, you can, nobody's gonna send in the secret police to drag us off to the concentration camp. Uh, material, uh, internal documents are declassified to an extent that doesn't exist almost anywhere. Uh, all the news is there, open, look at it, talk about it with your friends, talk about it with your neighbors, uh, uh, talk with others, talk on programs like this, write about it, join organizations that work on it. Every opportunity is open. Uh, the question is the will to pursue it. Do we have to sit in abject submission to the powerful propaganda system, or we will, do we decide to use our minds critically open-minded, think about the things that are in front of us and uh, work on them? It's not a secret. What do you think about cancel culture and does that make people less likely to express their opinions for fear of uh, losing their job, for example? Sure, it's been going on for far back in history as I can trace it. Uh, people on the left uh, were canceled constantly. Um, I could give you examples from my own experience, uh, just regarded as perfectly normal. They don't get jobs, can't talk. Uh, the United States, until it's changed a little bit in the last couple of years, society's opened up a little bit, but until very recently, it's probably the only country outside of dictatorships where you couldn't find a Marxist economist in an economics department. It's probably the only country in the world where socialism is a dirty word. In other countries, uh, socialism is like Democrat, a communist run for office, it's taken for granted. Uh, this is cancel culture with a vengeance. Publications are blocked. If you want examples, the, the first I've written often with uh, Edward Herman, professor of finance at the Wharton School. Our first book 
uh, he passed away recently, unfortunately. Our first book was in 1970. It was on called Counter-Revolutionary Violence. It was about US atrocities in Vietnam. It was published by a small publisher, the corporation that owned the publisher. One of its executives saw the book, didn't like it, ordered the publisher to withdraw it. When they refused, he put the whole publisher out of business, killing all their stock in order to suppress a book of ours. Is that cancel culture? Well, no, because it's against critics. That's permissible. The term, the concept cancel culture just arose recently when a number of often young people in the universities have started to pick up the tactics that are standard. Well, that's bad. They shouldn't do that. In fact, they shouldn't do it. And it is wrong. But remember that it's a toothpick on a mountain. This goes on all the time. Moving on to uh, Zelensky, why is Zelensky, who was elected as an anti-war candidate, now in favor of all-out war? And what is his motive, you think? Well, it's a long story here. He was elected as a, on a peace platform. We don't know all the details, but from what's available, what seems to have happened is that he began to move forward towards trying to establish something like the Minsk agreements. These were not minor agreements. They were authorized by a unanimous vote of the UN Security Council, the highest level you can get. Uh, he started moving forward on that. He was threatened by right-wing forces. He was even threatened with death. The United States gave him no support. He backed down. Uh, then came the events which we've talked about. Russians invaded. Uh, as of last, last March, the last we know, there were negotiations underway between Ukraine and Russia under Turkish auspices. Uh, Boris Johnson, who was then Prime Minister of England, flew to Kiev, uh, informed the Ukrainian government that the United States and Britain didn't want to see negotiations in. He was followed by Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, US Secretary of Defense, who presumably informed the Ukrainians that the US wanted the war to continue uh, to severely weaken Russia, his standard position. Uh, we know about this mostly from Ukrainian sources. Uh, the, uh, the US press doesn't cover it. They don't cover negotiations and diplomacy, only war. Well, the negotiations failed. We don't know exactly why, but you can make some guesses. As the war goes on, Naturally, it's inevitable. Positions harden on both sides. There are war crimes, brutality, violence, very natural progression. So by now his position is strongly opposed to negotiations right now. What would happen if the US took a different stand? We don't know. 
What do you think the world would look like in the next 10 to 30 years in terms of the global power structure and geopolitical alliances and economic system? Well, first of all, a background comment. We are facing two extraordinary crises. There's a reason why the doomsday clock, the hands were just moved to 90 seconds to midnight. We're facing, first of all, growing threat of nuclear war. We're facing environmental disaster. We have a couple of decades to try to deal with it. If we don't, it's finished. Doesn't mean everybody dies tomorrow, but we pass irreversible tipping points and from there it's steady decline. So unless these, uh, there is strong action, we know very much what has to be done. The answers are known, they're feasible. We're moving in the opposite direction, opening up to uh, fields for oil, fossil fuel exploration for decades ahead, uh, uh, increasing the threat of war, both in in Europe and also in Asia, where it's even more serious. A uh, lot to say about that. So in the next 20 or 30 years, unless these problems are dealt with, nothing else is going to matter. Right. Let's imagine that these problems are dealt with, then we can turn to this question. What will the world look like? There's a serious conflict right now, important one, between two conceptions of world order. One is the Atlanticist conception, NATO-based conception, the unipolar world order with the US running it, the rest are subordinate. Uh, the last NATO summit, the United States just extended NATO to the Indo-Pacific region, means it's a global military alliance supporting US policies in Europe and Asia, including confrontation with China. Well, that's one policy, includes severe sanctions against Russia, against Iran, against Cuba, unilateral US sanctions. The world doesn't like them, but they have to obey them. That's one view. The alternative is multipolarity. And we're seeing this happen. Most of the world does not go along with the United States, not on Ukraine, not on China, not on Cuba, nothing. Uh, most of the world wants to move in some different direction. And they're beginning to do so by setting up. So in the case of, say, the US sanctions on Russia, about 90% of the countries don't accept them. Uh, what they're doing is working out separate arrangements, uh, uh, exchange for, uh, currency exchanges, other arrangements. Uh, China is expanding it. We're trying to pre prevent it, but we can't. China is expanding its uh, development investment loan programs over Eurasia, reaching into Africa, Middle East, even the US backyard in Latin America, where China's now the main uh, countries in Latin America, like Argentina are joining the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Belt and Road System. 
can't stop that with guns. Uh, so most of the world is trying to, account to take part in that in some fashion. Well, could lead to a multipolar world, could lead to a unipolar US dominated world. That's the main conflict now. Uh, there's also another alternative. When the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, proposed what he called a common European home from Lisbon to Vladivostok with no military alliances, no victors, no defeated, working together to create a more or less social democratic uh, Eurasian system, which would then interact with the huge growing China market. It's another possibility. For Europe, that's pretty tempting, as long as Europe uh, follows US policies, they're going into severe decline. Uh, it's not only Ukraine, uh, there's a move towards a kind of deindustrialization. Also China, uh, the Biden administration has declared a kind of economic war with China. It's demanding that uh, other countries join the United States in preventing Chinese technological development. Well, take a look at cases. Take, say, the Netherlands. Netherlands has the world's most advanced uh, lithographic industry, which works on developing crucial components for uh, semiconductors, chips, and so on. Suppose they're cut out of the Chinese market, their major market. It's a pretty severe blow. Same for Samsung in South Korea. Same for Japanese industries. Will they accept US orders and agree to industrial decline? Or will they move towards some kind of accommodation with the resource rich areas, which are their natural trading partners? Right. Um, looking back on the, on your decades of research and analysis of the world order, what do you think are the most significant changes that have occurred since you first started studying uh, this topic? There are very significant changes. One thing that's changed in the United States is that it's become a much more open, free and civilized society. You go back to the 1960s, take a look at what was being written then and spoken about at the time, you can barely believe it. You couldn't even say these things now, true on issue after issue. Uh, take, I mean, some of it's almost unbelievable. In the 1960s, the US still had anti-miscegenation laws, which were so extreme that the Nazis wouldn't accept them. We had federally mandated segregation in housing. Federal housing, blacks couldn't get in. It's very serious. It was a boom, economic boom in the 50s and 60s. A black man could get a job, a decent job as an auto worker, make some money, try to buy a home. Uh -uh. There were levit downs, federally supported housing, segregated. That meant blacks were cut out of this. In America, that's wealth. 
for most people, their wealth is property has a major effect for 20 years. Uh, women's rights were not even discussed. In fact, formally speaking, women weren't even regarded legally as peers until 1975. Uh, no opposition to aggression. When Kennedy radically escalated the war in Vietnam, as he did, no opposition. He could barely get five people together to talk about it. Well, all of that has very substantially changed. That's all to the good. And there, of course, has been a backlash. Uh, the 60s is called the time of troubles because it civilized the society. That's dangerous. There was a backlash. The neoliberal assault that we discussed is basically a backlash. Well, that struggle is going on right now. So there have been lots of changes in the last, uh, in my case, about 75 years that I've been seriously involved in these things. If you made it this far, you're truly a sage. And we want to thank you for listening to True Stories in Science. Like, follow, and subscribe to support this show.